maybe he felt this was going to be the new modern him. There was no DiCaprio Rome. We don't want to learn the history of sodding cutlery. Maggie Thatcher's going to come and take away all your gold coins. Every third word is the word crime. Because once upon a time, Giles Brown was, was quite a cool name. They are the soup of the underwear world. Hello, I'm Tim Worthington. Welcome to another collection of highlights from Looks Unfamiliar, a show in which myself and the guests talk about six things that they remember that no one else ever seems to. Right in front of me right now is a copy of Charlie Brooker's Dawn of the Dumb, Dispatches from the Idiotic Frontline, which is a collection of newspaper columns which, as the back cover write-up suggests, concentrates mainly on his dislike for David Cameron. I bet that seems like ancient history to him now. In some of Charlie's earlier collections, there's a lot on EastEnders and in particular what he would do with it if he was given control of the BBC, which mainly seems to involve cancelling it through such subtle means as blasting it into space. One thing Charlie doesn't tackle though is the disastrous 1993 remake of the EastEnders theme tune, but when theatre critic Shanine Salmon appeared on the show, that was something she very much wanted to talk about. My memories of it are purely my mum going, what is that, when it suddenly came (laughs) on. And that's what started me. And why I've been reminded of it is Drama Channel have come up to 1993 in their showing of what they call classic EastEnders. Debatable whether these are classic episodes, but it's just old EastEnders. And they are now at the jazzy EastEnders theme, as I call it. It lasted about, I think it was like 18 months or something, which is much longer than I remember it lasting. In my mind, it was like a few months before someone said this is not acceptable and it doesn't make any sense I'm not really sure what the thinking was really I think it got to a point where EastEnders was about eight years old at that point and just thought we need to do something new and that's what it did and it just doesn't it doesn't even fit in with what was happening musically in 1993 it's such a weird thing to do and such a weird approach to kind of go we need to update the theme let's make it sound like this well that's the thing is I mean people describe it as the jazz theme but I wonder if they have ever actually heard any jazz in their lives and it's so Certainly, talk about what was going on at the time. It doesn't sound like the influence or Jimmy Require. Let's let's put it that way. Yeah, exactly. But it seems to be the background to it was not just them thinking, you know, we need to. So I do remember people saying, honestly, people saying EastEnders needs to update the opening titles a bit because it had been on week in week out for you know eight years by that point. Yeah. But there's also, I think Simon May had a weird obsession with reconfiguring that tune because going back to the very beginning, EastEnders wasn't a hit at first. But what really sort of pushed it through was BBC Records and Tapes were really, really behind it. And they released the theme as a single, which was a minor hit. And then there were records featured in the show, like Every Loser Wins or something out of nothing. And Anita Dobson did Anyone Can Fall In Love, the yes. vocal version, yeah. which is where this all starts. And obviously, you know, EastEnders became a success kind of partly on the back of those hits, I think, was it got it a lot more public attention. And then Simon May kept doing variations of it during the late 80s culminating in now this was something I thought I'd imagine until it turned up online Glory Be to God on High the EastEnders hymn yeah which was released as a single with religious lyrics set to it (laughs) But then, from there, he does this. And there was a vocal version of this as well, which I didn't know until the other day. I'll Always Believe in You by Sharon Benson. It was one of those people where you never quite figured out what she actually did. It always seemed to be a featuring singer Sharon Benson. You're like, well, where's she from? Yeah. What does she do? But she did this vocal version, which I was amazed by. that actually had a video. Yes, yeah, I was watching. It felt like the video and the whole atmosphere of it felt like it was a Eurovision song entry for that year. <laughs> Like, it's that kind of, like, this is what we want, and that's... I don't know, and it's kind of... Because people so dislike the jazzy version, 
I don't know why they thought, oh, if we add lyrics to it, maybe people will soften. And it's by a woman like she had no connection to EastEnders. So I think one of the reasons that Anita Dobson one does so well is, you know, she had been in EastEnders. She'd been this quite iconic character. And Sharon Benson is, from what I can see, just some session singer who agreed to do it. Like, why is she there? Why? And they had lots of like in 1993 EastEnders, you still had lots of people who could sing. Like, I'm pretty sure Michelle Gale was still around at that point. It's weird because I said I had completely forgotten about it up until drama started showing these episodes but that's probably one of my earliest memories of being just baffled why have they done this and why does it sound like that because you're right it's not quite jazz it just sort of sounds like it's trying to be a bit funkier and it, it's not really anything it just sounds a bit strange because you've got that key stender's theme lying underneath and at that point you know even now eastenders theme whether you watch it or not it's probably one of the most recognized in this country i find it fascinating but yeah i don't understand the need for the lyrics that's the bit as well even with anyone can fall in love like it just felt like it's not the eastenders theme is not that good a tune that it needs to be released in some sort of lyrical form and yeah i'm even more i'm just reading about the glory be to god on high which was performed on songs of praise and that's on youtube as well but again what religious people were asking for this i don't really know much about Simon May's personal life and maybe he felt this was going to be the new modern hymn because I don't think people really write hymns anymore but imagine singing that in church like I used to work for the Church of England exactly yeah (laughs) but I used to work for the Church of England and maybe I would have actually been able to sing them properly if they'd had EastEnders as the backing theme well like you I just can't understand why they felt the need to go down that route because I always thought the whole point of the EastEnders theme was you know whereas the Coronation Street one is quite kind relaxing in a way and laid back other soaps have more dramatic themes like Dallas you know was really kind of high ambition lots of money lots of gloss and so on EastEnders felt like it was gritty and also what people never really mention is that you know you've got the kind of cockney barroom piano playing the lead melody you've also got behind that sitar steel drums on it's it was like (laughs) they were reflecting everything in the arrangement but in this they were reflecting absolutely nothing at all no because one of EastEnders problems and I think even more so now it's set in East London which if you go to East London now is a very diverse multicultural part of I mean all of London is is diverse EastEnders has not never been good at diversity it will throw in a token brown and black family occasionally and that's the extent you will not see it's still quite white the bulk of their popular characters I would say are, are white I wonder if the theme was trying to that was the diversity you know let's have something more jazzy let's have this black singer Sharon Benson sing the theme and suggest that we actually do reflect London really well and they don't and the theme doesn't either and it kind of it reminded me as well of EastEnders will have when it what used to be anyway when it would have special episodes it would have something called Julia's theme which is a the slower sadder one increasingly I was just looking at a list of when it's used and in the early days it's used quite sparingly like at best every few months or so and there's a point kind of in the sort of mid 2000s where it feels like it's just being used every single episode and you just think it loses its power and you had one episode where I'm trying to remember it was the Slater's dad Charlie Slater leaves and yeah after saying emotional guy he leaves by train so that's in like 2011 and I'm pretty sure he's back about two or three months later <laughs> did they play it after... backwards and, they, yeah. back? and 
you just think, hang on, Julius seems should be kind of like a final. That should be like, thanks for all your years on this show. I, uh, in my opinion, it should only be used when someone's leaving and they've been there a long time and they've been really popular. Do you know what used to really annoy me or, well, just bemuse me really about when they brought in the diverse families on these standards? It seemed to be the law that they had to have an eccentric grandfather who would have comedy scenes with Doc Cotton. Yeah, where they could no, the old people or something. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> And they have to show, like, because what would usually happen is someone like Dot in real life would probably be a bit racist. So you'd have to show her interacting with this diverse to show she's a good character. She gets on with everyone. But you reminded me of the, I can't remember what year they were around, but it was, they were a family called the Ferreras. And they were, they, well, this was the issue. They didn't really know where they were from. So one aspect, they had these kind of Goan names and the dad was Catholic, I think. And Ferreira was like a Portuguese surname. But there was also these kind of Muslim elements as well. And it just felt like they'd just thrown whatever they knew about all generic Asian cultures. So whether that was from the Asian continent or those, the dysphoria, and just gone, this will do. And it led to one of what is my favourite anecdotes from EastEnders, which is the man who played the dad, who, apologies, I can't remember, but he was Mr. Ferreira for the purpose of this anecdote. He was from somewhere and he basically, what happens is they came on set and he basically gets deported. He gets dragged off set mid-scene and gets chucked out of the country and they have no they don't know how to prepare for this and what they claim is that the reason the fairies were so unpopular is that this happened all the storylines they had kind of went to hell and they just had to carry on but then next breath apparently they were going to kill him off anyway so it's like well why didn't you just not show us him dying and then have that really what was going to be a really interesting storyline which is he's such a horrible man they kill him they sort of hide him under the patio and then they carry on but what instead happens is this family are just sort of floating around EastEnders with no connections to anyone else because it's one of the reasons it's so difficult I think to bring in these sort of diverse families is who are they connected to so you can bring in like another Mitchell for example because the Mitchell's already there but you can't it's very hard to just have someone move in and make that established family it very rarely works the only ones that are kind of still there it's Rupert Walker as Patrick Truman who's been in it forever and he and his sort of family or adopted family kind of cling on because they one they've been there so long and two what do you do if you get rid of that one black family who's going to be next like who's going to come in i don't know why senders in particular even i think coronation street is much better or it's got much better and that's set in you know manchester which again is this other diverse city but yeah eastenders has never been good at diversity and it always tries to make eastenders more interesting in ways that it doesn't need to be made more interesting for example having a new theme tune or shoving on a sad theme tune at the end of an episode of course the various variations of the eastenders theme really just cause shanine bemusement but when only can champion and QI elf Lydia Marsden appeared on the show, she wanted to talk about a theme tune that had much more ominous connotations for her. Stop it and tidy up. They were a cartoon for children narrated by Terry Wogan and they all had sort of instructive names. So there was Stop It, who was like a little red gremlin, Tidy Up, who was a terrifying aubergine-like guy, and then their friends who were all called things like Go to Bed, I Said No... Come and play. That was a creepy one. They were all very sinister in their own way. One of my earliest memories is clinging to my grandmother while Tidy Up went on one of his tirades because they didn't talk. They all just made 
frightening noises. It was about recycling or being environmental or something. There was a deeper message behind it. Yes, it's funny you should say you found it disturbing because I was slightly older when it was on and it was one of those things where I was surprised to find it originally went out in the afternoons of Children's BBC because I remembered it being on in the mornings, which okay. I think it was on the second showing a couple of months later because it was first on in late 1988. And then, again, in early 1989, I'm not sure what happened beyond that, but it was the sort of thing in school where somebody would have been off, you know, because they'd been to the doctor or something, come back in and say, has anyone else seen that really (laughs) weird thing that's on? I think it was at the start of the broom cupboard, maybe. It became, me and one of my sisters became quite obsessed with it because it was really, really weird. There was one where, I mean, we sort of joked about how weird it was. There's one we were both really freaked out by called Say Please and Say Thank You, which is a sort of two-faced plant that just ate all of, I think, tidy up grew aubergines didn't he and it just he ate all of them and then denied it had done so it's a bit like a boris johnson plant really <laughs> and yeah it was quite creepy and maybe the sort of thing that possibly shouldn't have been shown to kids well not you know not shown to but who thought it was a good idea at any point i think it's good to frighten kids i think it's stuff like that has left me with a, a healthy appreciation for the eccentric and the the abnormal and i think i you know i'm all for freaking some kids out my overriding memory of it is, is tidy up used to sort of make this protracted noise when he was frightened or perturbed and he was like Burr! but for about a minute and and i used to be petrified of it to this day i have, have a real aversion to long protracted single note noises and i think it comes from him so i blame whoever was in charge of that decision but uh, yeah every character in that was was sinister in some way and i think there might be some available on youtube i i implore your listeners to just go and seek it out they're only five ten minutes these episodes i do know a bit of background behind it because it was made by queensgate productions who i think were co-owned by terry wogan okay who also did trapdoor a couple of years earlier okay two of the weirdest animations of the 80s but only one that people remember but the other thing is it was a co-production with who by that point were called the tidy britain group which used to be keep britain tidy with that sort of weird pointy man dropping litter into (laughs) a bin they had changed the name by that and i think their logo came up the end with sort of boing sound (laughs) which was weird in itself the whole thing i mean when i say it was frightening that's not quite correct it was just weird it yeah, was plain weird. Yeah, it's weird. I didn't know it was made by the same people as Trapdoor, and that's interesting because I had never heard of Trapdoor until I got to university, and then it was one of those posters that everyone had on their wall, and I was like, "What <laughs> is this?" I it passed me by completely. I think maybe I was going to say I was too young for it, but everybody was the same age at me at uni. I have no idea. But looking at this though, it's reminded me of the way that when it was first on, when I saw it as part of the BBC's daytime schedules, that was still a novelty. I think they would only been doing daytime for just over two years at that point okay and it was full of odd strange little things like this and yeah repeats of things that i think the liver birds showed up in <laughs> the daytime schedules at one point all kinds of odd programs like bizarre and box clever stop it and tidy up is very much of a piece with that in my mind it's always associated with five to eleven that weird slot where yeah. you would get people who maybe have been in you know something like the brothers or blake seven a couple of years earlier and they they were on the way down the celebrity ladder and they come on and read the poem for five minutes. Yeah, and that was sat a by some flowers. 
I think it's, it's lovely. If you look at, I follow quite a lot of old Twitter accounts that almost exclusively retweet sort of old Radio Times from the 80s and 90s. And I, it's fascinating. I feel the programmes are so much simpler and they're more diverse. And I just think, oh, I sort of miss that. Now BBC One is just, you know six hours of property programs in the mornings and if you're off sick i miss that when it was just yeah a man and a poem and some flowers like what a world yeah i don't think kids really go to school anymore and say oh my god something that really weird yeah. program where someone goes around valuing houses and also i think the internet has sort of killed that i think i'm 33 and i think i'm one of the last years probably that i can properly remember without the internet i know what that was like and so it was quite difficult for this show thinking well what does nobody remember because i've had so many discussions with people all across the world being like do you remember this so it's hard to find something that nobody remembers anymore and i think that sense of shared nostalgia will leave as things are accessible forever and now everyone remembers everything and it's hard to explain i tend to drop it quite quickly because there's no way of explaining (laughs) it especially if you're not near sort of a youtube or anything like that because my overriding memory of us how frightening it was i very quickly descended to trying to make the tidy up noise and and explaining (laughs) like don't you think that's frightening and people go what is no it looks like there was a stop it and tidy up annual at one point so hopefully nobody ever bought that for lydia but somebody did buy for writer Jenny Morrill an annual that she couldn't understand why she had it or why it existed in the first place. Elvis Monthly Special, 1983. I'm not sure I understand that. I'm not sure why it's a monthly special, but it's 1983. But it is. That's what we're working with. And we have, it's basically 80% posters because there's only so much you can say about Elvis. And then we get to the puzzle pages which obviously hardcore Elvis fans, they need the ability to do like an Elvis word search. Oh, I've got a history of the jumpsuit as well. Who invented it, does it say? They're literally just describing all the suits he's ever worn. The first jumpsuits in February 1970. No, jumpsuits did not exist before Elvis was a thing. This is literally just a detailed history of Elvis's particular jumpsuits. And then we get to the Elvis puzzle section. Now we've got an Elvis word. And then we've got an Elvis search, which is find the Elvis films. And I love this because they managed to do just like fill five pages with this shit. Anyway, this was compiled by Margaret A. Gray in case you wanted to give her a shout-out. Well, I noticed there's an Elvis quiz compiled by Anne E. Nixon. Now, Nixon is a name very closely associated with Elvis, so any relation, I wonder? Well, before we get to the quiz, we've got the Double Trouble Puzzle by Keith Howell. I love how they, they just insist on crediting these people. One word is missing from each sentence, and they're all Elvis lyrics. So you've got to fill in the missing words of Elvis lyrics, but then you've got to sort of fit them into with this weird grid. I don't think I'm going to be doing it, if I'm honest. Um, the person <laughs> who had this angle before me couldn't do the word search, and they got about three answers and then just gave up. Well, you wonder who would have had it, because 1983, what a weird time that is. Even, that's even slightly after, when the BBC used to put on all the Elvis films in the Christmas school holidays. And, you know, I was quite obsessed with those films, but this was about three years after that. I would have been quite disappointed to get this annual as a child, particularly looking into it. I mean, it was compiled by Todd Slaughter, who at the time was quite a famous Elvis fan. I think he ran the fan club in the UK, but it's full of really tedious minutiae about the club and how to be a good member. Yes. I'm getting to that, but just before, do you want to have a cracker, a couple of questions from Go on. a date? 
with Elvis, which is dates associated with Elvis, not like how would you behave on a date with Elvis. Which year did Elvis first visit Paris? Uh, 1879, I don't fucking know. Which year did the fan club first visit the USA? Like, what fan club? I imagine there's more than one Elvis fan club. Is it teenage fan club? Because that would have been 1991, (laughs) I think. Which year did Elvis make a film with Barbara Stowell? Yeah. Anyway, the answer I might know that one. Was that 1961? I don't know. I don't know where the answers are. (laughs) So we're going to who would want this annual and who would make this annual, which brings us to, if I can get through all the sodding posters, a full-page shill for the Elvis fan club, which I assume if you've got this annual... You're already in this club. There's a lot of caps lock in this advert. The Elvis Presley fan club is particularly proud to have reached that landmark. Uh, what landmark? Oh, 25 years. To be succeeding in keeping the legend living. They didn't do a very good job of that, did they? <laughs> <laughs> it's £2.50 a year if you're interested. Famous convention attendees include Jimmy Savile. Oops. Anita Harris. Les Gray and Mud, Billy J. Creamer and Ruth Maddock. It's basically a who's who of who the fuck's that and Jimmy Savile. So there's a, a P.O. box in Leicester that you can write to. So it's like um, there was an episode of Rainbow where they were wrapping a Christmas present for Auntie Elsie in New Zealand and Geoffrey was writing her address and the address was Green Street, New Zealand. <laughs> And that was it. They were just going to send it via airmail. Well, that's interesting to compare with. Do you remember the school's programme Watch, the BBC school's programme? There was one of that where, I think it was when it was being presented by Louise and James, where they were explaining how the postal system worked. And the whole thing was that James wrote Louise's address out in full on the letter, but because his handwriting was bad, instead of East Cheam, it said East Cream. So it got returned, and he had to send it again, properly addressed. So they went to all the effort of a proper address, and Jeffrey just went like uh, somewhere, <laughs> bunged it in the post box. Yeah, and it got there. Well, we assume it got there because it ends on a bit of a cliffhanger where they all have chips. So we, we never know if Auntie Elsie got a present. Actually, it was on a video. It was on Christmas Rainbow. And in between the episodes, Jeffrey does a little thing to the camera. And after that episode, he's like, I do hope Auntie Elsie got a present. She didn't. Anyway, so the Elvis fan club, we now have a big thing about support your branch leader. Now, <laughs> this is where you get into the council committee tier of things. Every year we read complaints from our local branch leaders who say that fans don't care anymore. So these people's jobs is presumably to tell you how to be the right sort of Elvis fan. And if you're not enough of an Elvis fan, you'll be shamed. Maybe if you want to join, they give you a quiz like the one we just couldn't do. But then if you don't get all the answers right, you're not allowed to join. You've got to go away for advice. <laughs> but if you're interested, there is a list of your local branch leaders in the UK. My local one would be either Birmingham or Wolverhampton. Wolverhampton is Maureen Handley. So I, I might go and see her. And then, right, this will be really good. <laughs> then I can sort of infiltrate it from the inside. <laughs> so the Elvis fan club is compromised. <laughs> And I could become a branch leader. But then you'd be in the same position as them and you'd have to complain that they weren't get, you weren't getting <laughs> enough support from the proper type of fans. I was quite disappointed that none of them were giving themselves Elvisy names, like, I don't know, Jeremy, it's all happened at World's Fair or something. <laughs> Not hyphenated, just one long word. 
they're all called people like David Trotter, sadly. They've got branches, like, everywhere. They've got three in Glamorgan for some reason. Yeah, if anybody wants to know who their local Elvis club branch leader is, do get in touch. I can sell you the information. <gasps> We've just... Oh, that would be a right good, like, side hustle. I'll just <laughs> sell people's information. <laughs> I'll sell people's names and addresses based off this. Not that I'm advocating this as such, but if we did collect the names of Elvis Presley fan club members and also details of their ability to complete Elvis word searches, we could probably come up with a card-based game system to rival one that podcaster Al Kennedy has particularly fond memories of. I was a teenager at exactly the right time for Steve Jackson's battle cards in that they came out in 93 I think it was when I turned 13 and I was into you know Terry Pratchett and I was into you know Dungeons and Dragons books and Dragonlance and all that kind of stuff and I was massively being a, a British kid in, into that sort of type of fantasy massively into the fighting fantasy game books you know it was all the kind of you know, Warlock of Firetop Mountain kind of stuff not so much the ones that were not in that universe not so much the kind of the sci-fi ones or the one that i can't remember what it was called the weird sort of mad maxi one that they did it was all the ones that were just really grim grotty manky fantasy books where it was you're walking along a corridor there's a door do you want to open the door and it's okay or no i'm just gonna keep going and you basically had about a 50 50 chance that if you open the door there would be a monster who if you killed it would give you an essential item that if you didn't have it later in the book you were absolutely screwed or you would have a monster that if you killed it there would be nothing in the room whatsoever apart from the monster that was a very 1980s inspired like it's a hard life out there kids maggie thatcher's gonna come and take away all your gold coins and your magic wishing rings but in 93 steve jackson one of the fine fantasy writers he came up with this thing battle cards battle cards were they were trading cards basically like the first sort of real wave of trading cards as trading cards as collectible things had come a few years before with the Ninja Turtles trading cards that were everywhere for like a, a full summer. Battle cards were something that was like, well, what we'll do is we'll make trading cards, but they'll also be a game. But they'll be a game that means you can't collect the cards because they were like lottery scratch cards in that they had 25 little scratch off circles of silver on them and you know you a section for the whatever the creature or characters it was its head and its uh, legs and its arms and so on and it had little life boxes and it had a purse box as well because they all carried purses it was very forward thinking you would take turns with a friend to scratch off a hit space on one of their cards and if you didn't get anything behind that space then that was it you was your turn over if you did get a little red blood dot then you got to have another go and if you got a second red blood dot, which was a wound, I think they, they called it, you got to scratch off one of their like four or five life boxes. And if you got a red skull behind that, then it was dead. And you got to take the card and scratch off whatever was in its purse and see how much money it carried around, which is usually not very much. And if you didn't get that, then at any point, if you come up with nothing, then it goes over to the other person. And what that meant was you could only ever play one of these cards once, ever. 
at which point it had already been grievously wounded. You know, there's no coming back from being a battle cards character. You get in one fight and you are either dead or you're sent off to the retirement home. You could either collect them or you could play the game. It wasn't just that they were one or the other thing. It was the fact that if you did want to play the game, then it was a very expensive habit to be in. Because they were really expensive. I think they were something like a pound for five or something like that. And back in, you know, 93, that was a lot of money for something that's going to last you for five minutes of a game with one of your mates. And they had such cool kind of evocative, that that whole grim, grotty, snotty world of fighting fantasy style art. You know, there was not a lot of elves with flowing robes going, ah, kind of stuff. It wasn't very Tolkien-esque. It was extremely just dank and everything was just covered in filth. And it was a very British way of looking at fantasy stuff. Not that, not that Tolkien's wasn't, obviously, but it was a very kind of 1980s British way of looking at things. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned Lottery Scratch cards, because this was a couple of years before they were a thing. Mm. And at that point, Scratch cards, this has been completely forgotten about now, more associated with it, with the sort of thing where one of the wilder kids in school would somehow acquire from, I never knew quite whether it was news agents or pubs, but you never knew how they got hold of them or what their provenance was you never saw them anywhere but there were kind of sort of like fruit machine scratch cards that you're supposed to be over 18 to buy technically it was gambling to me sort of scratch cards seemed like quite sleazy i'd always thought it was given respectability well after a fashion by the lottery scratch cards but i didn't know about this weird thing in between because by that stage i sort of left fighting fantasy behind but the thing i'm interested to find out is whether that was really big in the 80s it was quite regular that a kid would come into school you know a very different kind of kid coming into school would have say an issue of white dwarf or a lead figurine or whatever and a teacher would always invariably say as they tried to stuff it in their bag just the teacher came in to take the register they've been in the news those I don't want to see them again. You know, because there were all the weird scare stories about a boy who'd hallucinated orcs after seeing the word Dungeons and Dragons or whatever. Was that still the situation? I don't know. People accept it a bit more. Well, I think there, there was still that whole kind of satanic panic thing going with D&D even back then. I remember Future Publishing had a magazine called Arcane for a while, which had some really fantastic writers working for it. It had people like Jonathan Nash. It had Anthony Johnson, who's the now a, a comics writer and thriller writer was a graphic designer at Future at that point. He was working on Arcane. And they did an issue quite early on in their run, I think it was about five issues in, where the cover story was about RPGs and Satanic Panic. Because it was still something that people would not really get behind at that point. It was still looked at as being a wee bit kind of a, is this child going to end up trying to cast a spell? <laughs> is it a time on the thing about things that regardless of the actual moral rights and wrongs when the whole generation or even the whole swathe of the society don't understand something they decide it's dangerous in a really weird way i mean it'll be no surprise to anyone listening that i'm quite fascinated by the whole video nasties phenomenon but what's really weird is when you look back at the press coverage and the things that people like mps say and so on it's almost as though they couldn't quite be happy with the idea that these films might have a dangerous effect on people psychologically it was they seemed to think that somehow the films could get you from beyond the tape 
almost like they were a malevolent force. And one of my favourite things ever is, I think it was from the Daily Mail, but a cutting with photos of two chief constables and the headline, Save Us From Video Nasties. <laughs> I've never read it because I want it to be them saying, and I was walking home and evil speak tripped me up. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Driller killer put them up against the wall and took their lunch money. <laughs> Imagine if that was the worst of his crimes. A very different film. <laughs> yeah. I think that in the 80s and the 90s, particularly the 80s, driven by people like Patricia Pooling and so on, all the kind of bothered about Dungeons and Dragons and all those sorts of pressure groups. D&D got, in particular it was D&D, because it had this name value. And it was as if there was going to be some actual genuine magic done by children sitting trying to you know work out critical hit tables and things like that you know, I, I don't think it's entirely likely that you know satan was sitting there going now should this be a a d12 or a d20 for this hmm. what's the evilest die the evilest die of course is the d4 because when you drop one on the floor and can't find it you will find it the next morning when you sleepily come into the living room again apparently there were warrior cards spell cards advanced combat cards but no combat cards quest cards and treasure cards yeah the treasure cards was an absolute racket the treasure <laughs> cards was you would scratch off an item on one side like a name of an item. No idea what it was going to be, and you had a variety of different choices you could make. And then on the other side, you would scratch off how much is they going to be asking for it. So it could be anything. You know, it could be, oh, it's a small potion, and it costs 200 gold. Or it could be like, it's an incredible battle axe, and it costs you 10 pence, or whatever. What you needed to do with them was, you needed to have collected enough actual physical cards that you had beaten of your mates, and got enough from the purses that you would literally send off the treasure card plus all the cards that you had beaten to get that amount of money and they would send you the item card back in the post it sounds like a satanic i spy book it was unbelievable like it was a proper kind of pyramid scheme almost like it was just ridiculous bit of odd barter while i was busy trying to predict what to get on his treasure cards Quiz expert David Smith has sat in front of a VHS tape of The Little Clowns of Happy Town, lovable characters that he looks back on with an enormous amount of affection. They are a bunch of vigilante psychopaths. <laughs> Honestly, this is something that we had uh, any time we went around to visit my grandparents' house when I was very little. They only had about four videotapes. One of them was this rip-off of Cinderella that was not the Disney version. And, you know, when you're a kid, it's like anything that's not Heinz tomato ketchup. Anything that's not the actual version is going to be horrible. One of the other tapes that they had was this show called The Little Clowns of Happy Town, which had three episodes on it. And every time we went round, we would be plonked in front of the television and this would be stuck on. I watched it again. I didn't remember anything other than the theme song. I remember um, a whole bunch of us were having a family holiday about 10 years ago, something like that. And one of my sisters mentioned, hey, do you remember that clown show that we watched around grandparents' house? And the other one sung the theme tune. So it was, it was like a PTSD flashback, honestly. I mean, I don't really know how to describe it because it's kind of like the Smurfs, except there are these collection of clowns. They're not, they look like kids in, in clown costumes, but they're not. They're actual, like, clowns are a species in this world. 
And they live in this town called Happy Town with a bunch of weird half-clown, half-animal hybrids called clownimals. And they live in this kind of, I don't know if it's like a castle or a school or something like that. They're basically, their job is to spread happiness wherever they go. But the way that they do it is kind of like psychopathic in a way. One of the tasks that they're given is that the local school kids are sad. And so it's like there's some kind of vigilante superhero team where they turn up and they're supposed to cheer people up because they turn up and they go, how are we going to cheer these kids up? I know, let's kidnap all their pets and stage a parade for them. And that's, it's just, it was so freaky, this thing. It's just the idea that these clowns who all have this kind of way of talking, it's that kind of sort of saccharine kind of, oh, I'm so happy, look at me, oh. And kind of like the Smurfs, they use the word clown as a verb, as a noun, as anything they want. It's like every third word is the word clown. And I just remember watching this as a kid, and even at the age of four or five, I'm going, what the hell is this? And I think it only ran for about something like 10 episodes before it was pulled off the air, and it's not hard to see why. The thing I found really surprising about it when I was looking it up today, it was produced by Marvel. Yes. So at the same time that Marvel are making the Transformers cartoon and the Spider-Man cartoon, they're making this. And I just, yeah, I couldn't believe that when I heard it. But yeah, this is the sort of thing where that theme song and the memories of this TV show have just are burned into my brain. And yeah, it's, it wasn't a pleasant experience, let's put it that way. Well, I did some research into the background to it. I was always aware it was a Marvel production that I'd probably seen the title of, you know, in the very small print bits of the TV listings in the newspaper and thought, I don't like the sound of that at all. You know, in the papers, they would never say for programmes like that what actually happened in them. They'd just say the time it was on. Yeah. And apparently... It was made in tandem with Defenders of the Earth, which was another Marvel cartoon series, which people are always surprised that it was Marvel, but it was because they were so short of things that actually owned the rights to. They bought the rights to some old newspaper strip characters, you know, Flash Gordon, the Phantom, Mandrake the Magician, and yeah. whatever Lothar actually was. Nobody's ever quite been able to decide <laughs> all what his powers were that he was armed with. But these shows were developed in tandem with kind of an advertising consultancy who were brought on board apparently to make them more marketable now in my opinion how they did that with defenders of the earth was that they made it completely unmarketable you know you can make a million episodes of it show them endlessly there's nothing really to latch on to that would have kids running out to buy the defenders of the earth play set at christmas it just they've taken all the edges off it and little clowns are happy towns used to fall into there was a whole tranche of goody goody cartoons around then things like the get along gang the smoggies kissy fur the bloody raccoons you know the puppy's new adventures on and on it went just to me admittedly i was a bit old for those sort of cartoons by the time they came out but they're the antithesis of what i had liked when i was that age you wanted to see anarchic characters almost up to no good really not just people who well the get along gang the whole point of them was they got along and the theme song said, Montgomery's the leader and he's such a good sport, the get along gang get along. That's not what you want from a cartoon. And I imagine that mostly this wasn't what you wanted either. No, the get along gang, that sounds amazing. I know what we'll do. We'll make a television show in which there is no conflict whatsoever between the characters. <laughs> that always makes for good television, doesn't it? Let's all get along famously. 
And the little kinds of happy town is like that. It's just, it's so saccharine. Honestly, you could get diabetes just watching it. It's one of those things. I mean, again, it, it is for children and it's got, they've all got squeaky voices. The characters had names like Big Top and Blooper and Pranky. They've got a giant pet elephant whose name is Rover. Voiced by Frank Welker. It could only be voiced by oh, Frank yeah, Welker, no, Fra- frankly. Frank Welker. I mean, the man was an absolute animal machine. But it was the kind of thing where in the theme song as well, I couldn't quite make out the lyrics, but they seem to explain how the clown animals come to be as well, like how they're born. I need to have, I couldn't find the lyrics anywhere, but it's something about like how they're half clown, half animal or something like that. It's one of those classic sort of 80s, 90s TV shows where they're trying to explain the entire setup in about 30 seconds of theme song. And yeah, it's just one of those things where they're all sort of complimenting each other. There's no arguments or anything like that. They're all just, if you didn't have a feed of clowns before watching this show, this one would just, yeah, it's, oh, (laughs) it just sent shudders down my spine when I was watching it earlier. And I don't know how we sat through it every Saturday afternoon as kids. Well, that's the really weird thing about it is the guy who was basically the showrunner who created it, who wrote most of it, who, you know, did all the concepts for it. Guy called Chuck Lorre. Do you know who he is? It's either the Big Bang Theory guy or it's Saturday Night Live or something like that. Yeah, he went on to create loads of sitcoms, things like Grace Under Fire, Dharma and Greg, Two and a Half Men, you know, which are likeable but not classic sitcoms, but they're all predicated on people bickering or, in the case of Dharma and Greg, people who can't bicker because they're too nice which is you know an interesting spin on the whole yeah. thing but how did he get from the little clowns of happy town to there was he just so fed up of the well the advertising creatives advising him about it thought, <laughs> i'll show them i just have to get him fight all the time from now on maybe it broke him maybe the, <laughs> he just he tried making this and went right that's it i can never make a show like that again it's going to be big bang period and two and a half men henceforth and if you thought the Little Clowns of Happy Town were obscure, podcasters Lisa Parker and Andrew Trowbridge wanted to talk about a, quote, scrumpy and Western artist who's so far off the radar, nobody even really knows how to spell his name, including the man himself. Well, the thing is, you know an awful lot about pop music, and a lot of our friends do as well. But I think Lisa and I have something in common, mm-hmm. and that we never bought a normal record in our lives. <laughs> Because I, I had a record player and there was just nowhere to buy records sort of within the radius of about 10 miles. A trip to Salisbury was like virtually a day out for us and sort of going into Smith's or something like that. And I, I just never felt qualified to buy sensible records because I, I didn't know what was cool and what wasn't. The album I've got in my hand here is Furzlin with Shag Connors and the Carrot Crunchers, which claims to be West Country humour at its funniest. £1.25 from WH Smith. This is a genre of music known as Scrumpy and Western. You've probably heard of the Wurzels. You might have heard of the Yetis. I defy you to have heard of the sh- of Shag Connors and the Carrot Crunchers, however. These are some fellows from Gloucester, which again is fairly exotic when you live in, <laughs> in Dorset. But the reason he's called Shag Connors, and I shall read the description from the back of the album, he was found drunk, sleeping with his head resting on a manure heap, which caused a tobacco-like hair to grow on the sides of his face. Shortage of cigarettes on the farm caused him to try some, some in a roll-up. Very strong, but good. 
Now everybody smokes it in the village. They all know I grow me own tobacco, so they call me Shag. What? (laughs) (laughs) I'm just quoting what it says on the back. I'm very much of the opinion that there should be such a thing as, like, yokel pride. You'd get something like the Wurzels appearing on sort of Cheggers Plays Pop or Mm. something like that, and they were always very much seen as the sort of joke act, weren't they? But to me, all this sort of music from the country was much closer to my heart than any sort of urban sort of decay type thing. So, yeah, they do make a few appearances on the Will Tappers and Shunters show in the Sooty show. Of course. To both of them, of course. Yes. I'm not surprised in the slightest. And they did team up with Luann Peters once for a single called It's Me, Margaret. I've never heard it, but I don't <laughs> know. There's an album, Country Capers, which features a song about Nelly from Paul. Given that we live in Paul, I've never met Nelly, but hey. <laughs> well, I had to look through their discography, and I noticed a couple of interesting things. One is that the album you mentioned, Furslin, I think it's from 1970. It was on Pi's budget label, Marble Arch. But it's got two songs on it that really caught my attention. Well, three, actually. There's Au Pair Girl, which I, I don't know if I want to hear, <laughs> to be honest with you. There's I'm Jealous of the Farmyard Cockerel, but it sounds like something Doc Cox would have done, as I have a big one. But there's also Blame the Breathalyzer, which I'm guessing has aged very badly. See if I can remember some of the lyrics of that a minute. I'm jealous of the Farmyard Cockerel with his many, many wives. You can't get drunk on lemonade, so blame the breathalyzer or something like that. We have got the album, but we've got nothing to play it on and (laughs) haven't had anything to play it on for about 20 years. And yes, I have searched for sort of rips of it on YouTube and nobody's ever been brave enough to put the whole album on there. Well, the other albums, this is a really interesting thing to notice. Like you say, he's built a Shag Connors on Furslin on a little of what you fancy which is on EMI's budget label, Starline, in 1973, which means it was probably sharing rack space with Relics by Pink Floyd. On that, he's built a shag Connor, and I should also point out, the cover of that has got that real kind of, there's a kind of design from the 70s that just screams no to me. It just seems completely wrong. It's like, you know, when you find the Ken Dodd's Diddy Men annual, and something about the tinting of the photograph the colours and the font just make you think, there's something inexplicably sinister about this I can't put my finger on. <laughs> it's, like, it's like the visual equivalent of a public information film. But then on Country Capers, which is released by, I'll be careful I say this, Sweet Folk and Country, catalogue yeah. number SFA064, 1976, he's Shag Connor, apostrophe S. <laughs> what was he actually called? Good question. I've looked them up on scrumpyandwestern.co.uk. Yes. <laughs> I bet you never knew such a site existed. I like, do now. I found it today. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, it, his son is Martin Scarecrow Connor, singular. So I really don't know. Going down a generation, they seem to have lost the S. And there's some bits on that site where it spells it C-O-N-N-E-R. Oh, what dear. is happening? I have no idea. Maybe I should just say that maybe literacy in the West Country is not sort of not the best. And I'm allowed to say that and you're not. <laughs> I was going to say, I'm not going to add anything to that. But what I am quite impressed by on the Scrumpy Western website, I mean, I assumed it would just be, like you said, them, the Wurzels and the Yetis. But it seems to encompass everything. Like, you know, like there was a thing for cowpunk bands in the 80s where... It it was the sort of thing John Peel would play, but with a more country and western tinge to it. You know, there's all kinds of... They seem to have a really broad scope. 
I'm quite impressed with that. It's not just somebody having a laugh. It's somebody who genuinely likes that element of music. This is a whole subculture because, you know, as as you say, this is meant to be about stuff that I remember that nobody else does. (laughs) And I think this is really, really true in this case. But yeah, it is quite fun just to see because I'm I'm very much sort of on the side of sort of people just doing something because they can. I love amateur podcasts over professional ones. I think some of the most interesting work is done there and i think that that's true to some extent in, in this sort of music that because you i've taken you to sort of um sort of yetis sort of concerts and things like yes. that and they are really good fun yes. to attend and they're very popular as well yeah they're always uh, very sort of well well attended yeah because i think you were possibly a bit dubious weren't you Why, to start with yeah yeah but yeah. It, it it's that thing of we're not huge stars you know we'll come over and talk to you we'll have a pint and and I just like that friendliness of it. There's no big egos there, which can put me off some, some more professional people, shall we say. Well, yeah, you do get all these people that have had very long careers without ever really being known to the public. And that, I think that's because, as you say, they do what they want to do because they can. And that finds an audience. There are always people, often it's not enough people, but there are always people who are going to want to listen to or read or watch or whatever it is. Like I say, sometimes like these guys, you can keep going for decades almost completely under the radar you did mention the baron knights some time ago on this didn't you but if you were to look at my record collection such Mm. as it is it would be shag connors the yetis the baron knights the bucket of water song and we got copied into a conversation with mike bat where i learned about a connection between the Wombles and the Glums the other oh, day. Oh, yes! <laughs> yeah, I saw that, yes. And that, that, that was down to you. I, I didn't expect Mike back to be tweeting us. It's very strange. <laughs> so so there, there's somebody who's happy to talk to anybody, I think. So that's the attitude I like. I have noticed as well, have you ever seen they did the Bristol City Songs EP, where the release date is question mark? And there's no label credited <laughs> for it. Where the tracks are one Bristol City, there'll always be a Bristol, glory, glory Bristol City, and when the red, red robin brackets Bristol City. <laughs> I love the fact that at the end they just thought, do you know what? This joke's gone on long enough. Let's just be ridiculous. I remember a few years ago, there was great excitement when some footage of Adge Cutler and the Wurzels was mm. discovered in like Bristol City Centre. But I, I honestly don't think think if a load of footage turned up of, of the carrot crunchers there'd be quite that audience for it <laughs> so far in this collection it's all been quite innocent fun even steve jackson's bone crunching child barter system and even shag connor's is or is it shag connor's is he you just don't know tales of drunk driving and stuff to do with au pair girls that we probably don't really want to know about comedian Marilyn o'rourke however wanted to talk about a slightly more shall we say exotic hallmark of their childhood. It's a difficult one to Google. Again, if I didn't still have a copy of this catalogue under the bed, I would have thought I'd invented it because I always knew it as Shop Around International, but I think in the end I found a link view which was International Exotic Glamourware. <laughs> my mum was single. My dad had died when I was seven. Also, my mum wasn't pretty. She had a really nice figure, though. So she was very into buying things that made her look good. She was very into being a singer.
single woman and having a sex life. It's interesting as well that I'm quite, you know, one of the things I've written my solo show about is that I've always seemed to be a bit hypersexual, like I seem to talk about it more than other people, well, talk about it more than other women and think about it more, and I know that's a huge generalisation, but every time I think it's a huge generalisation, people say to me, no, Meryl, I know nobody like you. <laughs> like, I follow, I follow porn stars on Twitter, and I've got, there's so many other women I know who go, yeah, like, I'm really into the sex worker industry, I'm really into, like, you know, supporting them, and I go, oh, which porn stars do you follow? I don't follow porn stars. <laughs> and every now and then people say to me, you know, are you damaged? And of course I am a comedian, of course I'm damaged. But that's never kind of added up in my brain as to why I find sex so fascinating. And I actually think it's this. I actually think it's because I would watch my mum dressing herself up and buying these really glamorous clothing. We would go to places like Butlins and she'd get off with a drummer from the, from the band <laughs> in the dance hall. And I think that's actually the thing of me just watching her transforming herself and watching how happy she was transforming herself. So this catalogue, this was her underwear catalogue, which I would sneak out of her room. And this kind of became, as I was a teenager in my formative years, the sort of equivalent of a naughty magazine. I mean, it has got almost naked women in it. And what was quite interesting was you got a bit embarrassed looking at it online because, of course, online, I guess, the pictures that they would reserve now would be like the PVC corsets and the, they've got these really odd bras which are nipple peephole bras. So they've literally only got a tiny little hole cut out that you're meant to insert your nipple in. What is the purpose of that? I really don't understand. I mean, the reason I, I've got this catalogue is close to mind at the moment is a friend recently said to me, oh, agent provocateur and their split crotch panties. And I was like, no, 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 mate. Split crotch panties have been around for years because they were in this. But what is the point of a split crotch panty? <laughs> no point they are the soup of the underwear world so you know like with soup it's like mate either drink something or eat something what is this <laughs> Blick crotch panties are the same they they have literally no purpose there's nothing erotic about you know you can't there's nothing shielding you that you have to peel away there's nothing and they're not comfortable and at the same time you're not naked it's just just like a garnish you've sort of got on your fanny like a bit of parsley so they had loads of split crotch panties which I seem to remember at the time as in my early teens sort of trying to work out what the hell was going on there but the beginning of the catalogue which I was going to say you probably couldn't find online are very long glamorous nightgowns like absolutely floor length the one here I'm looking at on the front page it's, it's bright red and it's satin and it's floor length and then there's black lacy cups She's wearing a big red feather boa, so she actually looks like somebody from a cowboy movie in the 40s. And those are the things my mum would buy. She would buy these floor-length nighties, which, you know, after I would go to bed, she had, I think, one or two steady boyfriends in her later life. And, and they were absolutely for the steady boyfriends that she would put on one of these long, glamorous nightgowns to open the door. A bit, you know, my mum was an adult in the 70s, so that whole kind of thing that we see now of milkmen or, or stand up on the buses opening a door and there's a woman in a negligee that was her and actually i kind of you know we don't really have a concept of that now 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 if you watch an adult movie they open the door and the woman's naked she's never wearing a floor length nightgown that she very slowly takes off and i just thought it was the most ridiculously glamorous thing so i would just look through this catalogue endlessly and of course as i got slightly older i'd start having stirrings and it goes from the glamorous and then it goes to these things that were called play suits which are literally just it's just a strip of cloth, it's a long strip of cloth, 
the thing they're most similar to now is when you have a baby carrier that's just a long strip of cloth where you've tied the baby to you. They're literally a long strip of cloth where you tie a bit of it over your boobs and a bit of it down over your fanny. They're charging, I mean, even then, £7.50 for just a strip of cloth that someone's tied around themselves. <laughs> it was a combination of being both absolutely glamorous and absolutely baffling at the same time. But this whole world that I wasn't party to, that I desperately... The women in it looked so beautiful and it was a big part of my... You know, when you're a teenager, there are kind of two types of erotica. There's the erotica of, I want that person to be with me. But there's also the erotica of, I want to be that person. And I wanted to be every single woman in this catalogue, apart from the ones in the crotchless panties. Even then, I thought that was weird. And then they've got a section, so you get sort of halfway through with the baby dolls. And that's another thing people don't talk about anymore, baby doll night. And then there's a PVC section. That was the other nice thing about it, was it kind of got more depraved the first... <laughs> so it started off with long evening dresses and then suddenly there's somebody who's just wearing PVC gloves and nothing else. But that was also quite nice. It shows that in the early 80s there were like, in this catalog, at least four or five different ways of being sexy. I don't know, this might be me being old, but these days it seems to be one way of being sexy. And like, if you do go on to adult films, such which I know a lot of people disapprove of, and I know I should disapprove of more, but I find them fascinating, is... A woman who's 17 on an adult film site will often look exactly the same as a woman who's 40. So they'll both have the long hair that's been very straightened and lip fillers and have bodies that look exactly the same, that have had the same thing shaved off or removed or made bigger. And I almost think, like, what's the point? What's the point of clicking on someone who's in their late 40s if they look exactly the same as someone who's 17? And that was really nice about this catalogue as well, was that not only was I looking at it going, oh, look at all of these beautiful women who I might become, but I had the choice of being long evening dress exotic woman or PVC boots woman. The other thing that I found fascinating as a child is an interesting thing that I don't know how many people can relate to. So my dad died when I was seven and he was quite ill from when I was four, but also he was a never nude. My dad would never be naked in front of me. He didn't want to frighten me with such a thing. And at the back of the catalogue is men's underwear. Now, as a child who had never seen a man, I knew that men had willies and I knew that willies were kind of, you know, banana shaped. I had no concept of testicles. Literally no concept at all. Nobody had told me testicles existed. There was no need for anybody to have told me they existed. Now, in sex education, even when they're quite small, like my son has had, they have biology lessons going, these are all the bits. But I have no, so they showed these men in pants and I expected men in pants to have this kind of long, <laughs> sort of long holster. <laughs> You know those novelty pants you get where you can look like an elephant's trunk, right? I thought that would be what men's pants looked like. And all of the men are wearing these things that are kind of round. And as a child, I had no concept of what that round thing was in the front of their pants. <laughs> I thought what they'd done was taken their willy and sort of wound it round like a Cumberland sausage. <laughs> So I would look through all the women's bits and be like, oh, I want to be her, I want to be her. And then I would look at the men's bits and just be completely repulsed because <laughs> in a kind of horror film way of like, not, not what is that within the pouch? <laughs> well, the reason.
reason I, when we were actually discussing this, I decided, you know, on the evidence of what was online, because, you know, how strange, men weren't interested in the publication details or anything when they're doing blog posts about it. I felt it seemed a bit sleazy, because what was out there reminded me of the sort of thing where, now, you know, there's a standing joke where people think they're really funny when they go, who goes around putting pornographic magazines in Woodland? And like, well, it's actually kids, because there were certain places where these things were stashed by other kids, because they nicked them from their parents, they could not keep it in the house somewhere secret. Other kids seemed to somehow get hold of this stuff. There would be places they would be hidden. The two that I really remember clearly was there was a sort of waste ground alleyway going down to the prom in Liverpool, which is quite a risky place to hide it, because the prom at that point was like, it was like feral. It was full of Dominic Cummings types, like hiding behind bollards, waiting to steal bikes from other kids. There was always a chance it was going to be spotted by someone else there who would move it to another location, then that would be, ooh, who put that there? It was a kid who'd stolen it from a kid who'd stolen it. And similarly, the council tower block, quite often people would stash magazines in the maintenance cupboard on the ground floor. So again, it would be, who's put that in there? A kid that's nicked it, another kid had nicked it, put it to another place. That's why it was like a redistribution system, but the pictures that I saw were exactly the kind of thing that you would have got in the sort of thing that was stashed in those places. But it seems like it was more of a, a legit proposition, really. It wasn't just out to entertain thieving adolescents. No, well, the first page has got, you know, all the sizes that you can fit, and it's got one of those photos that are actually quite, you know, now when they have television adverts for the Harmony catalogue and stuff, they've got two very happy people sitting next to each other going, well, we've been married for 20 years, and now we have a large vibrating egg. You know, those sort of things. You mentioned Dominic Cummings. He always reminds me of an of a erotic egg. So on the front page is a photograph of a very cosy-looking couple, and he's in a jumper, and she's looking at the camera because she's just opened a box which has got a red lacy thing in it. And there's lots of guarantees of quality. There's a photograph of the guy that runs the company, Mr. Cassar. What does he look like? He looks how you'd expect. He looks orange, bespectacled, in a grey suit, and he has hair which, you know in the early 80s when men had hair that looked like wigs? Yeah. But might not have actually been a wig? Yes. The fashion was to have a bit too much hair combed in, a, in an odd way. But then, you know, it's like I say, it really makes me wish that there was a culture of negligees now. I mean, I'm looking at a picture here of two women, one brunette and one blonde, and they're both in leopard print 90s. They're very now, very 2020. And the woman who's blonde, she's got her hair just sort of piled up on her head in a really soft way, which was very of the time. And her dress is unzipped, so she's got a lot of side boob going on, and her legs sticking out. But basically, everything's covered apart from the side boob. And yet it still looks beautifully sexy, and she's growling because she's wearing leopard skin. And I don't know, I... I talk a lot in my current show because it is about how much people expose themselves online but we don't seem to have that concept anymore that hiding something away is actually quite erotic it's like how i don't understand crotchless panties because to me the erotic thing about a panty is that there's a no entry it says there's no entry sign that you have to negotiate your <laughs> that there's actually like you know you've come to the last barrier you have to convince me to open this door <laughs> there's another dress here where it's completely sideless so her boobs are covered and there's a panel in front of her but her legs are sticking out both sides of it and i love all that stuff it was so glamorous but yeah i mean that's the thing being a girl we didn't have that culture 
of finding corn mags in bushes. We, we didn't want to do that. We didn't want to go looking for them. I say, again, massive generalisation, but I don't know any girls that do. And back when we were kids, I talk about this on stage as well. And I love talking about this in front of young people because this baffles them. But the only way you would see a porn film would be, especially if you're a, a woman who was just, you know, your, your average woman in her early 20s, would be you get an invite to a party and part of the invite would be Graham is bringing his porn. <laughs> and Graham was nobody's friend. The man who had some porn. So he would be invited to the party, much like a drug dealer would, to provide the porn and be put in a room that had a video. And you would go in and visit the porn. And at this point, young people always say to me, what, so did you all start having an orgy or something? You go, no, no. You didn't touch each other. You weren't supposed to enjoy the porn. You would go in, look at it, laugh at it, and then leave. And the only person that stayed in the room was Graham, like if you'd, you know, minding it, like if you'd hired a bouncy car. <laughs> so, yeah, I guess, I mean, maybe that is another reason why people say, oh, Meryl, you're different to other women, which I, I don't, again, I don't want women listening to this going, how dare you? But I did grow up leasing through this magazine of barely dressed women, wanting to be them rather than have them. I'm heterosexual. But I guess maybe a lot of other women did. And now, something you might not have heard. Me on TV Cream stays indoors, talking to Graham Kibblewhite about Filmation's late 70s high-concept sci-fi cartoon series Space Sentinels, which I hadn't seen in a very long time. I found the whole thing cacophonous, really, because as well as the music, there's kind of, in most scenes, there's computery backgrounds going on, there's a lot of whooshing noises. It just seemed like a wall of noise. And that's why I think... Although the jokes that they trade aren't very good anyway, they fell really even flatter than you'd think for me because they were jokes delivered in a stilted way in the middle of this just barrage of noise. And I found that the most off-putting thing about it. There was no let-up in that at all, no moments of silence. And that seemed really weird to me, even compared to other Filmation cartoons, which have moments that are relatively quiet. So... Yeah, that, that was the strangest thing I found about it by far. Excuse the interrupt, but tracking unidentified objects, possibly a meteorite, calculated to impact 27.43 kilometers due west. Um, Sentinel-1, his his voice is, is multi-tracked as well. Actually, I found him at times, maybe this is because I'm eking into middle age, I found him occasionally quite hard even to understand, but he's certainly very, again... Um, He's certainly very disquieting. I, I, uh, he's not really a, a very avuncular kind of paternal figure, is he, in the show? No, and I think that's the reason I got. I always got it so confused with Battle of the Planets is that he's very similar to the bad guys. It's not really a computer in that, but Oh Luminous One, which is just a weird birdie face that appears on the computer screen. And the two really, I mean, when you consider that in that cartoon, that's the bad guy that has that kind of demeanour and voice. Like you say, yes, he is very unsettling. And as I say, there's no explanation about Sentinel Bond's background, so that makes it even more disquieting still. And there is a sense, isn't there, one could interpret the the opening monologue given by him is the fact that what he did was he kidnapped these three kids from Earth. It's never made clear that they ever gave their consent to do this. And now there are living forever, stuck in the bottom of this volcano, you know, inside his spaceship, basically being sent out on errands. And maybe the fate of being the new Morpheus awaits them in the future, which will be even more daunting. You know, that they, they might fall from favour and be persecuted by their replacements. You may get a read. 
you may gain recharge. Sometimes this job drives me nuts. And we also want to talk about the comic relief robot Mo. Obviously, he falls into a huge kind of lineage of comic relief robots. Um, beautifully designed, though. Um, I think the subtext of him lusting after Astra obviously is uncomfortable watching now. But one of the design elements I thought was really clever and I really liked about him was he has no mechanical mouth, but actually his eyes have this kind of digital watch LED display and his eyes they're kind of pulsed when he talks. And I thought that was really quite neat, wasn't it, as a, as a, as a clever way to get across that uh, he's currently talking. Yes, and I also think it was directly copied by, I mean, something else that I got this confused with was Herbie the Robot in the Fantastic Four cartoon. Danger! Danger! I sense danger! Herbie the Robot looks very similar to Mo and has a kind of similar... The eyes aren't quite as animated, but I do remember there was a bit of that kind of characteristic about it. I think they just saw Space Sentinels and copied that as a way of filling that gap. But I quite like Mo, actually. Mo was the most likable character by far for me. And it, as you say, there is a tradition in filmation cartoons of look at things like Orko in He-Man and Masters of the Universe, which was created specifically for the cartoon. Batmite in Batman, Nakima in Tarzan. They just they always like to have that kind of comedy facilitator. Could be relied on to be you know, to fall about and be silly, but then when they were needed to tie up a plot hole, to leap into action. Let's talk then more about Morpheus. For me, he is an incredibly generic baddie. He is no Zoltar. And even though he has the combined powers of the Sentinels, which causes his strength, its speed and its shape changing, he never really feels like the uber threat that he could be. No, and he's got that terrible stereotype evil James Galway look that so many villains had around that time. And that, more that's a passage of time thing, but that does not lend itself to threatening well at all. But, yeah, there just seems to be, he's just a bit annoyed that he's being cast out. He doesn't really seem to have a great grand plan in mind. Uh, another planet. How many centuries have I been at this? No matter... It's time to bait another trap. Sooner or later, somewhere in this universe, I'm going to snare the unthreatable. Just that he wants the power, and that's that. There isn't really much discussion of what he might do with it. And that in itself is hardly a threat. It's like the Austin Powers Dr. Evil thing of where he asks for a million dollars. No, there, there isn't really any sense of imminent danger with him. And that makes for quite a dull story, really. Don't forget you can find the full version of that chat about Space Sentinels and the full versions of all of these shows and plenty more besides at timworthington.org. While you're there, why not buy one of my books to help support Looks Unfamiliar? In fact, while you're there, you can also find my other side podcast, It's Good Except It Sucks, which is a movie-by-movie and television series-by-television series look at the Marvel Cinematic Universe. There's quite a few of them up there so far. Here's a clip of David talking about Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and a preview of another edition that'll be out soon featuring Shanine talking about Black Panther. The first season, it's it's kind of like a lot of television shows, and I'm as guilty of this as anyone, but it, it kind of drives me a bit mad when people say, trust me, if you get through the first 16 episodes, it gets good. <laughs> I promise. And it's, you know, it's something like a 12 hour investment before you start enjoying it. And it does feel like I don't know how much of this is true or whatever version, but I've heard different versions of this story with season one is that they obviously had to 
tread water a bit until the Winter Soldier reveal and the big twist about S.H.I.E.L.D. and Hydra, which I think happens about two thirds of the way through season one. And I don't know whether because it was very sort of monster of the week kind of before that, where there wasn't much going on and they were still kind of finding their feet like a lot of shows do in their first season. And after sort of that episode, about 15 or 16 episodes in when the big Hydra reveal happens before that, it is kind of plodding and it is kind of there's not much there and it does kind of feel like they're sort of waiting for the big thing to happen you know i remember the pilot and a couple of the first episodes being a bit bland i think it's fair to say and it's a shame because they had this was the first marvel cinematic universe television series this was launching the whole platform that would then go on to lead to jessica jones and daredevil and all the others but so many people turned in for that first season and it eventually plateaued to a sort of as they say in the show a small but active fan base but if they'd hit the ground running from the start i think it would have probably retained a bigger audience although then who knows how different the uh, the later seasons would have been but it's again it's a very kind of him being white south african feels like so right like you couldn't just have him as like some random american guy or, or whatever he has to have that link to africa to expose what he thinks is the hypocrisy of wakanda so you've even got someone like him who they never really portray him as necessarily racist it's more that he thinks well actually you've got all this equipment again why aren't you doing more with it and as the black panther and t'challa says you know he says well you know i'm looking out for my people that you know no other leader would be judged if they were just looking out for their people but suddenly they have this kind of responsibility as you know leaders in africa to be concerned about everyone in the world and they don't have the resources to do that but you do get sort of some redemption really where he kind of realizes well actually maybe we should be doing more why are we hiding away and to what purpose and tries to right the wrongs of his father who was protecting yeah protecting his citizens really and that's why he ends up killing his own brother because his brother was putting his citizens at risk and as king you can't have that and that's just about it for now so keep on enjoying looks unfamiliar about that i did have to borrow from cartman book i think it was of myths and legends and it was all the sort of like, <laughs> Was she around when they happened? Well, she was quite old, so. Higher Than the Sun by Tim Worthington. The story of Bloodless by My Bloody Valentine, Foxface Alpha by Saint Etienne, Screamer Delicate by Primal Scream, Bandwagon S by Teenage Fan Club, and how Creation Records took on the world and nearly won. Find out more at timworthington.org.